Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Big stories. Big guests. The Big Picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, a number of experts have raised concern about a controversial study on water fluoridation. Why transparency is the best way to resolve this. Also, in the aftermath of the Megan Murphy controversy this week in Toronto, why it's so important for public libraries to stand for free expression. Plus, healthy living and healthy eating. A conversation with Whole30 CEO and author Melissa Hartwig. Well, they were debating water fluoridation at City Hall yesterday. So it is still very much a controversial issue. Now, I think there is a lot of evidence on the side of water fluoridation and the public health benefits that result from that and, and how it does represent a, a, you know, a real straightforward approach in, in helping to improve dental care, in particular uh, amongst children. Uh, but at the same time, we should follow the science. So when a study came along recently suggesting there was a link between the fluoridation consumption on the part of mothers and lower IQ in their children, it's something that, that we should learn more about. Now, after that study came out, a lot of experts raised some, some red flags, raised some concerns, pointed to, to some of the flaws or the uncertainties around the study and its conclusions. Not necessarily dismissing it altogether, but saying, you know, we've got some concerns and we've got some questions. So how to resolve this? How do we get better understanding of this? Well, 30 academics and health experts from Canada, the U.S., U.K., Ireland, and Australia have signed on to a letter uh, raising some of these concerns with the U.S. National Institute of Environmental Health Science, which funded this research, and to also ask them to ensure that this raw data can be released so other experts can study it for themselves and other researchers can try and duplicate it. Because it really matters when it comes to an issue like this and understanding what the science is actually telling us. One of the signatories to that letter is Timothy Caulfield. He's Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy at the University of Alberta, uh, Research Director of the Health Law Institute at the U of A, and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Professor Caulfield, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me on, Rob. I mean, we always want to make sure that, that science is getting it right, that, that we can check and double check. When it comes to an issue like fluoride, though, what, why are the stakes so high in your view? Well, well, first of all, I think we need to recognize that there is, you know, a really big body of evidence already on this topic. And any study that comes out, particularly one that's alarming, that cuts against, that, cuts against that body of evidence, I think it deserves, you know, real scrutiny. Uh, in addition to that, it's important to recognize that, that the fluoridation of water, the use of fluoride more generally, has been considered one of the greatest public health achievements. I think the CDC ranks it as one of the greatest public health achievements of the last century. Um, so this matters, and, and there's a robust body of evidence to show it, it works to achieve its public health goals. So, you know, I, I think, you know, given the, that combination, 
um, any any research or any study that comes out, particular, particularly if it's only one study that cuts against that, I, I think you know at, at a minimum uh, should cause a degree of, you know of pause. You know, we should really reflect on it. And then and then lastly, I'd like to point out, um, you know, there's so much noise around this topic, the the topic of of fluoride. You know, there's conspiracy theories out there. There was a study that came out in the U.S. that found that nine percent of Americans, nine percent, but that's not an insignificant number believe that the government is putting fluoride in the water for some nefarious reason, like mind control. Um, and something like 17% believe that could be true. So over, over a quarter of the population is kind of embracing this conspiracy theory. So there is a lot of noise around this topic. So again, that, that's one reason we have to be really careful uh, about you know, how we how we communicate um, research uh, in the context of fluoride. Right. Now, now with this study in particular that, that found a link between water fluoridation and lower IQ, I mean, it, it's something we should take seriously. It would be premature, I think, to dismiss it altogether. The, the people involved in the study have defended it. They claim it was a large and, and rigorous study. But to other experts, there, there were some red flags around this. What are some of the concerns around this particular study? Well, first of all, it is a... A correlation study, right? So they they cannot prove causation, right? And and I think that's is right off the top a really important point to make. You know, so much health research is only correlational in nature, and, and when that happens, it it you know at, at best uh, is it can serve as research that is suggestive, right? Now we don't know even if a correlation study is done very very well, whether what they're studying, fluoride, actually caused the outcome that they see uh, a lowering of, of IQ. Uh, and it's particularly problematic when the thing that they're measuring, IQ, is complex in itself. Um, you know, there are many factors that contribute to IQ, including the IQ of your parents, the socioeconomics, your nutrition, the, your environment, what you're exposed to. So, you know, that's a very complex variable. And so I think that's one reason people are, are very cautious about this study. The other, the other red flag that comes out of this study is that they found a lowering IQ in only in boys, not in girls. And there's no biologically plausible reason why that would be the case, like why fluoride would only impact uh, uh, male brains and not female brains. So that raises red flags that makes, well, what's going on in the data? Um, uh, so those are just, you know, just two examples. Um, and the one I've already raised, when you have a study that cuts against a large body of evidence, so there's a large body of evidence out there that already says it's safe and effective, fluoride. Uh, when you have one study that cuts against that, that body of evidence, again, it, it creates the need for greater scrutiny. All right. So talk about what, what specifically then this, this letter is asking for. This essentially, in my read on it, is, is that basically experts want to see the, the data. Is, is it that straightforward? Uh, it is that straightforward. You know, um, the, yes, you know, in this letter, um, there are some criticisms of the study, and some mm -hmm. of them I've outlined. Uh, but I think it's really important to emphasize we're not saying this is a Wakefield situation. We're not saying that this is fraudulent research, and, and we understand that the researchers uh, are trying to do the best they can. But but we think that, that people should have access to this data. And, and by the way, this is part of a broader movement uh, of transparency in research. Um, you know, this, you, this should happen when we talk about big pharma. This should happen yeah. in, you know, uh, other kinds of cohort studies, which this is. So 
there's a call to look at this uh, at this data. And, and given the controversy around this, given the co- the potential impact that this kind of research can have on public health policy, I, I think that that is a reasonable request. Right. And it seems to me then when it comes to any kind of scientific study, especially one that, that is, is claiming a new finding or goes against previous findings, it, it's important, isn't it, that, that others can try to, to replicate that. We need to see other examples, don't we? Uh, that's right, and, and there's an increasing push for replication in the context of, of biomedical research. You know, your listeners might be surprised that a, a lot of studies, even ones that have resulted in dramatic headlines, are not replicated when, when they're done by other researchers. Now, and that's not to say that these, uh, the first studies were fraudulent or are, are mistaken, uh, but that science is hard. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you, need, you need to do these studies again and again to confirm results. And what often happens, at a minimum, is often the effect size. So, you know, the size of the finding shrinks when it's replicated, right, when, when the studies are done again or, or other variables emerge. So, yeah, absolutely, there's this increasing call for, for more replication of research, which can be hard, Rob, because who's going to pay for that? You know, no one wants to pay for a study that redoes another study. So, so you know, it is challenging, but we think it needs to be done. It does. And, and you know, inconceivably, then replication could even potentially confirm this. Maybe these researchers really have stumbled across something that, that everybody missed up until this point. Uh, again, this is about following the evidence, but ensuring that we're following well done studies that, that produce good evidence. Uh, you know, that's right. That's right. And, uh, and, I, and I think that most researchers, you know, aren't, aren't afraid of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they want uh, people to replicate, uh, re- replicate their work and they invite it. Now, I understand here there may be issues about how do you get access to this data because it's held by, uh, you know, another, another entity. You know, I, I don't know the details of that, but that seems to be some, de- some hesitancy um, uh, with, this, with respect to this data. But, but look, it needs to be done. It's becoming, it's becoming an international norm. Well, it is, you know, and, and, and certainly I think fluoridation, I mean, it's, its track record would seem to speak for itself. It has been, I, I think, uh, an important public health uh, breakthrough in a lot of ways. But what do you make of the arguments, though, that, you know, in, in the day we're in now, that there are other, so many other ways to, to improve dental care, help lower-income families uh, access dental care, that maybe fluoridation isn't as needed as it once was? Do, do you think it's still, it's still an important issue? Uh, and, and right, and, and people are getting fluoride in their toothpaste increasingly yeah. now, you know, you know, et cetera. Yeah, I, I do think it's, it's necessary, and there are studies, and again, you have to be, I have to be careful not to overinterpret these studies because they're often correlational in nature also, right? Mm-hmm. But there are, there are studies that show if you remove fluoride from the water, and some have been done, right, in Calgary, yep. that, you know, the cavities do go up and other health issues go up. So I absolutely think it's still necessary, and it creates a, um, a level playing field. Um, and uh, also we have to remember the you know, socioeconomic issues. This is a cheap, effective way to get uh, to help uh, uh, the population uh, broadly. Um, and, and, and people often, well, fluoride's a you know, chemical, you know, but it, it, it's in water naturally, right? This, right. You know, people see the word chemical and they think it's you know, inherently bad for you. And that's, of course, that's not necessarily the case you know, at all. You know, fluoride is you know, isn't in the water naturally, and what they're trying to do is create uh, a, a level of fluoride that, that helps dental health. All right. So I guess uh, as it pertains to, to this issue, this particular study, this particular data, this letter has been sent to the U.S. National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. Uh, so for now, I suppose the, the ball is in their court. 
Yeah, I, I guess you know we're waiting. You know, I wasn't the chief author on this. You know, I know a lot of the uh, the, the co-signees, mm-hmm. um, but uh, I uh, yeah, we I, I think we need to wait and find out how it plays out. And, and, I, and my understanding is the authors of the study have been you know very forthcoming. They're, they are responding to answers. Uh, I mean, sorry, it's responding to questions uh, about their study. So, you know, hopefully it will be, this will, you know, get sorted out in, in a scientifically respectable manner. But, you know, I will say this. I'm worried that, that the damage has been done, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, this study is out there. It's never going to go away. And everyone who's anti-fluoride is going to point to it forever, regardless of what future research says. Yeah, you may be right. We'll leave it there for now. Professor Caulfield, always appreciate the insights. And uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Right, well, well, thank you very much. Uh, Tim Caulfield, Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy at the University of Alberta, professor in the Faculty of Public Health, also Research Director of the Health Law Institute. Well, it ended up being a lot of controversy last night in Toronto, and I guess we all knew it was building to that. Uh, a feminist activist by the name of Megan Murphy uh, was giving a speech at the Toronto Public Library. There was a whole lot of pressure on the library to cancel that event. To their credit, they didn't relent. A lot of protesters showed up last night. Global's Camille, uh, Camille Caramali was there. Well, there's a large police presence here as well, alongside dozens of protesters. And so the Vancouver journalist uh, Megan Murphy has spoken around the world about gender and feminism, but it's been her criticism of transgender legislation that's caught the ire of many people, arguing that transgender rights endanger women and undermine their rights. And Murphy was banned from Twitter for expressing her views as as well in Toronto Mayor John Tory has also spoken against the library's decision to host this talk Global News spoke to Murphy last week to hear her side of the story I find it quite disturbing again um, and really misguided that writers of all people and people who probably consider themselves progressive people people who probably consider themselves feminist are opposing free speech and free expression especially the free speech and free expression of feminists and women who are trying to protect women's sex-based rights. And so a lot of fierce opposition here, a lot of people very loud here, uh, and a lot of opposition against the Toronto Public Library for hosting this session. But in its defense, the library has said time and time again that uh, as a public institution, it has an obligation to protect free speech regardless of beliefs. Well, they do, right? And that's the whole issue here. This is the public library. Uh, it is supposed to be accessible to the public. If public libraries are going to have space for events, uh, then so long as nobody is breaking the law, the library shouldn't really be picking or choosing who gets to use those spaces. If you don't want to attend that event, then don't go. If you don't want to hear what Megan Murphy has to say, don't go to her event. But the idea that the Toronto Public Library should refuse to uh, allow it to use that space, I mean, that, that should be troubling. So what ended up being troubling, I think, was the fact that so many people seem to, to be on that side of this conversation. Joining us for some further thoughts is Chris Selley, columnist for the National Post, nationalpost.com. He has a great piece on all of this today. Chris, thanks for joining us here. Uh, thanks for having me, Rob. You know, I mean, Megan Murphy, I, look, I think there's there's some nuance in what she's saying. I can understand maybe why people don't like her, or don't like her message. But, I mean, how much does that really matter here in this conversation, ultimately? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think that trans, um, transgender activists have, have I mean, they, they really are sort of a, a case study in how to really um, uh, 
control a narrative and, and, and really, I mean, it's, it's, it's objectively impressive um, mm-hmm. what they've been able to do. You know, we're not talking about a lot of people here, but we, they have managed to get the nominally conservative mayor of Toronto, for example, to um, <clears throat> tell the library that he doesn't think that they should be renting rooms to people um, that other people don't like, which is just an absolutely insane state of affairs, especially since two years ago, uh, we had a similar controversy when Toronto Public Library rented a a room, a different room, to uh, a bunch of neo-Nazis, real proper neo-Nazis like Paul Fromm, um, to hold a memorial service for a lawyer who used to represent them. And there was a similar controversy, and everyone said, including the mayor, said, hey, can can you please go and review your policies uh, and see, you know, well, just review your policies. Yeah. And they went and they, they got expert legal advice from some of the best constitutional lawyers in the country. Uh, they had that advice peer-reviewed, and they came up with new policies, and everyone said, okay, thanks, that's great. And now, two years later, the exact same thing is happening again, and people are, uh, uh, you know, progressives uh, are, are boycotting a library. It's, it's the most insane thing uh, I think that I've ever seen uh, along these lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it really is crazy. I mean, if you would have told someone that 30 or 40 years ago, you think about the debates that we're having around libraries or certain books being at libraries, you wait one day, it's going to be the progressives uh, who are going to be losing their minds over public libraries. It would have seemed just completely upside down. And I mean, it, it is upside ago, down. Yeah, because 30 <laughs> or 40 years ago, it, it was LGBTQ activists who were renting rooms at the library when exactly. no one else would rent them yeah. to them. This, this is... You know, even if you don't, that's sort of a utilitarian argument. I mean, even if you don't believe in it philosophically, the idea of essentially asking a government agency to pick and choose who gets to who gets to uh, appear on its premises, on public premises, when you yourself are fighting, um, you know, you yourself are a marginalized community who, who's fighting for acceptance. It just boggles my mind that people could be so, I mean, I don't even know what it is. I, I, I don't know what, what the instinct is behind it, because if, if libraries can fall victim to this, then I honestly don't know what else is left. I mean, I, it's, no one seems to understand, um, no one seems to understand just the basic rules of free speech in Canada. And, and I don't know if that's, there is this sort of weird idea that a lot of people have that Canada has much stricter restrictions on free speech than the Americans do. And that's not really true. Mm-hmm. We don't have a constant. Well, we do. It is in the Constitution. It's in the Charter of Rights. Um, but we don't have sort of a First Amendment. But I, I don't know what it is. I, and I just, I, you know, when I came out of the library last night, out of the location where the speech was, and just looked at this, you know, five or 600 people just screaming and shouting at the people leaving. I mean, I just, it's one of the most surreal things I've ever seen. I mean, these should be the library's biggest fans. Yeah, it's so bizarre. And I mean, just the, the reaction to it, right? That, um, you know, the, the city's uh, librarian, Vickery Bowles, has now been made out to be some kind of villain in all of this. The the Toronto Pride Parade is likely now going to exclude the library. Uh, that, that somehow now they're villains for, for sticking by this policy that, as you say, they, they put a lot of effort into. Yeah, and, and, and it's, I think it's just really sad, too, because, you know, I've seen a lot of people who are sort of, um, not anti-trans, but 
um, who are sort of part of this ongoing culture war over, you know, free speech on campus and things like that. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I, it's, it's, it's a war that I don't really want any part of, um, you know, even though it's, it is, um, those people tend to be in the right, I, I think, the, 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 on, on, the, on that side. But, I, you know, what's happening here is the library is becoming politicized. And so, you know, you see people calling Vickery Bowles, who's the, who's the uh, chief librarian, and he's saying, oh, she's a rock star. She's a free speech rock star. I mean, she shouldn't be a rock star. No one should even know her name. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? She should be running this library system. Um, for the benefit of everyone. And it's an absolutely tremendous library system. I'm, I'm a huge supporter of Toronto Public Libraries, and that's what makes me so angry about this, is that uh, it's not just a one-off thing here. What The, the danger is that in, in upholding the mandate, and it's not like it gave itself this mandate. I mean, it's right there in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Public institutions have to respect freedom of opinion and freedom of expression by upholding that mandate. Uh, it's going to somehow become uh, this this politicized thing in society, and that, and that people are going to turn against it. And there's and there's no one, and you know, politicians across the political spectrum are cheering it on. I, I, I just it, it, it boggles my mind. It is weird because at the same time, I mean, it was an open question whether you know the Toronto Public Library would hold true to its principles. It might have been convenient and and easy to just cave to all of this. That I mean, that that could have happened. Yeah, well, universities do it all the time. Right. Um, and I know that there is some, when you get into the legalese of it, whether the charter applies to universities, it, it, it gets complicated. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it would have been easy, and no one would have, you know, and, and I've always, I've had this sort of um, feeling in the pit of my stomach every time one of these things happens, that the library will cave. Um, but I, I think it's to the to the great, um, credit of, you know, could the same thing happened in Vancouver uh, with the Vancouver Public Library. They stuck to their guns and they got excommunicated from pride and, um, you know, the same thing with, with protests and people complaining about it. And, and um, yeah, like, I, I have a lot of respect for them for doing this. It's just... It, it, they, they shouldn't have to... I mean, you know... They, they, Vicky Bowles had to go on CBC Radio and then basically had Carol off bark at her for 15 minutes about uh, uh, how, how, you know, what on earth is this free speech thing you're talking about? And then she was on CBC Radio this week, and, and Matt Galloway asked if, if she could stay on as, that, as, library, as chief librarian after this. Wow. Man, what the hell? <laughs> like, journalists of all people, if, if, if not politicians, I mean, politicians... Uh, are, are not people. I've never been the people you should trust with free speech. Um, is that they're not going to understand? But if they don't get it, uh, you know, we got progressive politicians in, in Toronto leading the charge this time um, with the mayor's help. I, I mean, it shouldn't be up to the librarian to be fighting this rearguard action in 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 favor of a bedrock constitutional right. Um, and 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 it's just incredibly frustrating to see journalists. Um, piling on along with everyone else. Yeah, it's unfortunate too. I'm, it, it seems that I don't know. My sense is that all of this has probably backfired on, on the people who, who felt as though they, they were making some kind of valid point here. When you're seen as going after a public library, I think most reasonable people are going to see that as silly. On top of that, you, you, you're just you're heaping all of this attention uh, on someone in, in Megan Murphy that that you would rather the public ignore that it. it probably helps raise her profile. So what, what really has been accomplished here? 
Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's the that's the age-old question, right? I mean, I don't have any problem with with 600 people coming out to, to protest Megan Murphy. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's free speech, too. Fill your boots. Yeah. Um, you know, there was no violence or anything. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that, that is the, you know, ignoring is always an option. Uh, you know, the, the room had about, you know, I think the legal capacity, I believe, was 120 people. So it was a sort of surreal, surreal scene where... You're running this gauntlet to get in there, and then once you get there, it's just it's just this completely harmless library event where she didn't say anything remotely, um, well, certainly nothing remotely approaching the threshold at which a public institution should be saying, no, you know, this is a problem, certainly not in advance. Because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing, and, and this new policy, I think, is... is, is that they came up with a couple of years ago, I think is pretty good because basically what they've said is they're not focusing on the people, they're focusing on the purpose of the event. So right. if the purpose of the event was, you know, let's take away trans people's rights, then they would say, no, that's not, you know, we're not going to do that. But to discuss the effect of trans rights on um, biological women's rights, I mean, come on. There's just no, there's no possible um grounds to, to, to shut that down and I I, I I I really am just flummoxed I mean almost 24 hours later just I can't believe that we've got to this point um but to your point I mean I hope you know you're right I think probably most people do think that it's silly you know it's not a lot of people at the end of the day it's a lot of people who happen to be on Twitter and social media but when you've got the mayor, for God's sake, on board for this, yeah. then that becomes a, that becomes a really serious problem. It can't be a, just a fringe if you've got the mayor and multiple city councilors um, leading the charge. It, 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 those those are, those people need to pull their heads out of the rear ends and, and support the library. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, your piece, it's up at nationalpost.com. More coverage of what happened last night as well. Chris, uh, always a pleasure. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Thanks, Rob. Cheers. Chris Selly, columnist from the National Post, nationalpost.com. It's the same thing. I'm sure Chris is going to be made out to be a villain here, too, for daring to defend free speech. I mean, Chris isn't defending Megan Murphy. The public library's not defending Megan Murphy. Now, at the same time, if you want to defend Megan Murphy, you can um, she's being made out to be way worse, I think, than she is. And it's just it shows how upside down things are. Megan Murphy, in a different context, would be seen as a left-wing feminist, as a progressive feminist, which is ultimately what she is. That's her background. That's her education. That's what she speaks about. That's what she writes about. Women, women's rights, women's equality. She has a master's degree in gender, sexuality, and women's studies from Simon Fraser University, where she focused on women in the media and the medicalization of sex. Again, in a different context, the people who are defending her right now would say, well, who's this left-wing feminist studies academic? But it's around the issue of transgender rights and trans activism that she departs from a lot of her progressive feminist colleagues. I mean, her belief is that women are female. That, that there's a biological reality to that. And if you haven't grown up as a woman and understanding what it means to be female, you really can't ever truly understand and appreciate that. But at the same time, and here's a quote from her, she says, 
by all means, be yourself, dress how you like, express yourself as you wish in ways that make you feel good and authentic. Push back against gender stereotypes. Says, why would that demand one? Uh, why would that demand one is literally the opposite sex? I do not know. Woman is not simply a set of stereotypes, an outfit of feeling. There is nothing wrong with being a male or being a male who rejects masculinity. But it's ridiculous to say that if you reject gender stereotypes, you are literally no longer male. So, I mean, you can disagree with that. But is that so beyond the pale that that is speech that should be forbidden? I, I don't think so. If there's a reasonable counter to what she's saying, then, then make that argument. All right, well, important conversation about healthy living, healthy eating, also conversation about, you know, turning one's own life around uh, and, and the difference that, that these changes can make. So a, a remarkable personal story uh, for our next guest, but we're also here to talk about her new book. Melissa Hartwig is the co-founder and CEO of Whole30, uh, New York Times bestselling author. Her latest is called Whole30, Friends and Family. And, you know, kind of an interesting idea for people who are, whatever it is you're trying to follow or stick to with holidays coming up and social gatherings, it, it can be difficult. So uh, we're pleased to welcome uh, into the studio, the aforementioned uh, Melissa Hartwig. Welcome to Calgary. Welcome to the program. Thank Thanks you so much for today. having me. Thank you. Um, yeah, like I said, a lot to talk about. I think y- your own story is, is quite a fascinating one, obviously, now that the success you've achieved uh, in, you know, as, as an author, as kind of a health and wellness icon. But, you know, you, you came from a, a difficult spot. I mean, dealing with the addiction, a troubled past, quite a personal turnaround for you. Yeah, it has been. And it's been almost 20 years in the making. I uh, left rehab for my drug addiction for the last time almost 20 years ago. Wow. Yeah. You know, it took me a couple tries as it does for many people. But the last time I realized that I had to change everything about my life if I wanted to maintain my recovery. Yeah. So I adopted a growth mindset. I told myself I was a healthy person with healthy habits. I started looking for behaviors that could support this new mindset. So I changed the way I ate. I joined a gym for the first time in my life. I found a group of girlfriends who like to run and that became my social outlet. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where all of this began. Right. Yeah. The seeds for Whole30 are kind of planted there and in turning your life around and and seeing it for yourself, the the difference that those kinds of choices can make. Yeah. The Whole30 actually came about in 2009. So about nine years later as a 30 day self-experiment, I had been into health and fitness for several years now. And I was hoping to do this 30-day experiment where I eliminated foods that may be potentially problematic or pro-inflammatory. And I was hoping that they would improve my athletic performance in the gym and my recovery. What those 30 days showed me, not only did my energy skyrocket, my sleep got better, my mood improved, I was happier, but it showed me all the ways that I was using food like I used to use drugs. And that's an interesting point because, I mean, obviously there, there's some big differences, but in, in a lot of ways, I think maybe our relationship with food can be a lot like, you know, relationships that, that I have with, with drugs, with alcohol. You know, if I talk about this cycle of craving and overconsumption and the guilt and shame that that brings yeah. and the isolation that that behavior brings and the stress that that causes and then doing more of the thing that you hate yourself for, you don't know if I'm talking about drugs or if I'm right. talking about sugar. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of similarities, which is which is kind of chilling. So, um, the the foundation of Whole Thirty. Let's talk about kind of the the philosophy or what what your philosophy is for people who don't know. Yeah, you know, every dietitian in the world says there is no one size fits all approach when it comes to diet. Everyone needs to figure out what works for them. 
Whole30 is the answer to how do I figure out what works for me? It's not a diet. It's not a weight loss program. It's not prescriptive. We don't think you should eat like this forever. It's a 30-day self-experiment designed to show you how the foods you've been eating actually work for you so you can create the perfect sustainable diet for you long term. Yeah. Uh, you know, and making healthy choices. I mean, it's it's confusing to people. And you know, we see it seems like we get mixed messages all the time, don't we? We do. You know, one day coffee is good for you. One day coffee causes cancer. One day yeah. you should be eating red meat. The next day red meat is bad for you. The Whole30 is really at its heart a self-experiment. So no matter what study comes out, if you do the Whole30 and realize that when you eat dairy, you're skin breaks out or when you eat gluten the shoulder pain comes back it doesn't matter what the study says you know how this food works for you and you can apply it in your own life mm-hmm. by the way you do drink coffee right <laughs> I, drink, okay. I drink decaf but you can <laughs> oh, have okay. coffee on the whole 30 Coffee's yes okay. you're welcome <laughs> black coffee though right Black coffee. We do have some Whole30 compliant coffee creamers, actually. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But no sugar, no added sugar. <laughs> Probably just as well, right? I mean, in terms of food science, I think the one thing where there seems to be such enormous consensus and growing consensus is that sugar is terrible. You know, as with anything, it's not like a one size fits all. And I don't like demonizing any one food because <laughs> the context matters. But mm-hmm. we do eat a lot of sugar and sugar can be incredibly problematic emotionally, psychologically yeah. and physiologically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of, you know, and, and certainly, uh, you know, there's, there's the keto diet, low carb diets, uh, you know, different approaches when it comes to that. What, what are your thoughts on that? Is that kind of uh, along the lines of what you advocate in terms of protein versus carbohydrates? How, how does that fit into your philosophy? Those are really different approaches for very different um, purposes. So a ketogenic diet was developed by doctors, medical mm-hmm. doctors, in originally to help patients with neurological conditions like epilepsy. And it's kind of found its way in a diluted form into the mainstream as a weight loss approach. On the Whole30, we're not focusing on calories. We don't restrict. We don't count. We don't weigh. We don't measure. We're just eating whole, real, nutrient-dense food. And when you do that, you know your body knows how much you should be eating better than any calculator on the internet. And what we find is after 10 or so days on the Whole30, people's hunger and fullness signals come back online. One thing you strive, though, and this is interesting, is don't step on a scale. Yeah, there's no scale on at all on the whole 30. You're not really? allowed. It, we are so enamored with that number on the scale and it holds us hostage, our self-confidence, our sense of self-worth. And the diet industry has been telling us for years that the highest achievement we can attain is fitting into a smaller size pair oh, of absolutely. pants. And yeah. I'm over yeah. it. I think people are over it. So no scale. Yeah, because there is, there, there, it can become an obsession, right? And the obsession with the number can kind of just start to distract from everything else. Do you view it as unhealthy? Well, the scale weight doesn't tell you anything about whether you're getting healthier. I was at my lightest weight when I was a heroin addict, but I certainly wasn't healthy. So we want to disassociate the idea of health from scale. That is pure diet culture. What we're looking at on the Whole30 is how's your energy? How's your sleep? How's your mood? How's your digestion? How's your inflammation? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's such a big issue for so many people these days. How's your mood? Not so good. How's your sleep? What is sleep? I mean, right. Those are real challenges, uh, you know, just in terms of having energy and, and getting a good night's sleep that... A lot of us, a lot of us struggle with. And I don't think people realize how much your sleep is influenced by your diet. 
And if you are eating things in your diet, even the quote healthy stuff that isn't yeah. working in your system, you may be having trouble falling asleep, waking up frequently throughout the night, waking up too early and not being able to fall asleep or just not feeling rested. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's talk about the latest book. It's called Whole30 Friends and Family. And I, I don't think it's meant to hey, go out and recruit your friends and family. But I think at the same time, though, it's it's about you know, navigating social realities. So if you're trying a, a way of life that works for you, once you start going to parties or having friends over, these things can conflict, can't they? Absolutely. And I think it's so important that food is not divisive. You know, oh, food yeah. can be love. Food can be companionship and relationship. And for many of us, food has been woven through the tapestry of all of our relationships. But I never want someone to have to choose between making a f- friend or family member happy and upholding their health commitments. Mm-hmm. So Whole30 Friends and Family was designed to kind of seamlessly meld those two and help people uphold their health commitments and their promises to themselves while staying social on the program. Yeah, because as you said, I don't think people like that, that uh, conflict. I don't like you know, I don't think people like having other people having to accommodate them, but it, it doesn't have to be in conflict. Whether you're hosting family or friends, whether you're attending a gathering, it, you, can, you can balance all of this. Yes, and we've provided menus for everyday social occasions. So most people aren't doing a whole 30 around the holidays, you know, around Christmas mm-hmm. or New Year's. But it's like you're on the 30-day program and all of a sudden a birthday party pops up or you've got a family movie night or you've got a book club meeting. How do you go to those occasions and still participate and eat delicious food while maintaining your Whole30 commitment? Right. So if if I came to dinner at your house and and you were staying true to your your philosophy, uh, that's not to say I would even notice, right? You, You can prepare a meal. And and that person will sit down and say this was a fantastic meal without saying oh was this a, was this a whole thirty meal yeah. or is this a so and so kind of meal? You right? would never know if you've ever had a steak and grilled vegetables and a side of mashed potatoes. That's a whole thirty meal. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, I mean, this is to some extent a cookbook, but it 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 kind of fits in with that philosophy as well of just of your life, living your your best life, having those great relationships. It it all goes hand in hand, doesn't it? It does. And there are tips woven into the book as well for each menu specific to each occasion to help you navigate some of the challenges that may come up or some of the questions that friends and family might have. You know, you show up for your book club meeting and your members say like, why isn't there any wine tonight? And here's how you can navigate that and provide them alternatives that makes it that makes it feel just as festive. Right. Which, by the way, I guess in, in that sense, wine's uh, no, no. No, no. For the 30 days. <laughs> for 30 for days. the 30 days. Another, you know, most people don't realize how much alcohol messes with their sleep too. Yeah, or we, we're in denial about it. Yeah. I think we do know. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, it's, it's another one of those issues where, you know, we, we downplay, uh, it's not a big deal, it's not a big deal. But I think for a lot of people, maybe to take a step back and, and even to be able to do it for 30 days, it would probably be more of a struggle for some people than, than they realize, but it shouldn't be. It, you know what, it, to say it shouldn't be is not the point because it is. It's yeah. hard for people to give up bread for 30 days, cheese for 30 days, their after dinner dessert for 30 days. But, you know, the way I kind of empower people is like, you've done harder things in this lifetime. If you've birthed a baby, if you've fought cancer, if you've lost someone you loved, like you've done harder things. Mm -hmm. And people come out of this whole 30 feeling so empowered specifically because it is hard. Right. It's, you know, on day one, this, this seems impossible on day 30. Well, I'm glad I did that. Uh, Yeah. I don't want, I I could do this forever. 
Uh, well, much more at Whole30.com. Again, the book is Whole30 Friends and Family, available now. Melissa Hardwick, uh, thanks so much for coming in here today. Congrats on all the success, and I uh, really appreciate this. Thank you so much for having me. All right. That is uh, Melissa Hartwig, certified sports nutritionist, co-creator, CEO of the Whole30 program, the latest Whole30 Friends and Family. My name is Rob Breckenridge. This is Afternoons on 770 CHQR. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.